This morning I'm reading from Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezer Hadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building the house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Is that better? Okay. Jay, I am so grateful for you. Like, I think we could have just kept singing and I would have been fine this morning. I mean, it's just, I've never been moved in song like I am moved in this church. And that's not bragging. That's just me being truthful. I love it. And you do a great job. Well, my... Uh, my name is John, and for those of you um, who don't know me very well, I've been here for quite a long time, and it seems like there's an echo. Is there an echo? Is that just me? A little bit. Um, yeah, so I'm still just, I can't say I'm surprised or shocked, because this is what God does when you preach his word, but... I am surprised and shocked when I, when I look over a crowd like this and then think about where we came from. Um, and I always like to hear from our missionaries, and obviously because I like to hear from our missionaries, but I like that extra time built in before the kids leave because I get to hear those voices, those little guys. Parents, don't, don't be ashamed when your kids are making noise, when we have stuff going on. That is a, a blessing. That is so good to hear, and so don't, don't be uncomfortable. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm glad it's not my kids anymore, <laughs> but <laughs> I can relate, um, and you are welcome, and we just, we love it. Um, I stay pretty busy. Um, as you know, I'm not a full-time pastor. I am a full-time IT guy, and that uh, takes a lot of my time. Um, I'm also a dad and a husband and a pastor, so after I... Uh, finish those roles and do everything that those things require. I don't have a lot of time to do much of anything else, but I do enjoy hunting. Um, in fact, I would, I would still consider myself a hunter, um, and that's probably what I would do if I had some extra time. Um, I like pretty much all things that surround it, probably less. I, I like probably more of, of, of the outdoors and just the experience now than I than I do the actual taking of game, but, but I, I like meat too, so I don't mind that part of it. Um, but I grew up going as often as I could, and um, I grew up reading the magazines and, and wishing I had all the guns. And I remember 
I, I, I cracked open a magazine years ago and I read this story um, this guy wrote. It was really just more of an article. And, and, he, and he wrote on the perils of hunting in Alaska. And, and he pointed out one of them that I thought was really interesting. He, he said that one of the dangers in, in, in hunting in Alaska is this thing they call the dinner bell effect. And he went on to describe that when a hunter fires a gun in Alaska, if there's a grizzly bear within earshot, the bear will sometimes be drawn to the sound of the gunshot. And that's surprising that any animal would be drawn to the sound of a gunshot, but I guess this is the exception. The writer went on to explain that many times after a hunter takes a, a large animal in, in Alaska, he'll field dress it because, I mean, you've got moose, you've got elk, you've got big creatures in Alaska. And so he'll just, you know, when he takes the game, he'll just right then and there in the field just do what he does. And for those of you who know what that means, I'll spare you the details for those of you who don't, but you basically remove the parts that you don't want to eat. And many times the hunters will actually quarter the animals so that they can get it out of the woods because we're talking thousand pound animals here. Well, what the hunter leaves behind when he does that is a tasty meal for a predator if you're a predator in the Alaskan bush. And grizzly bears, being the chief of Alaskan predators, um, have learned that the sound of a gunshot in the woods many times means an easy dinner. Um, and it's become a concern, because if the bear shows up early to investigate, which many times they do, the situation can take a turn for the worse quickly. You see, not only do the bears hear the gunshots, but bears have the keenest sense of smell of, like, of any animal on Earth, they, they think, 2,100 times out of a human. Can you imagine that? That might be a miserable life, actually. 2,100 times. That's why they're mean, I guess. Um, so, so as soon as a hunter fires a gun and, and, and downs an animal, not only do they hear the gunshot, but they smell food, which is why they call it the dinner bell effect. Um, and they come to check it out. And it's a problem. It's a big, hungry problem for hunters that, that experience this. And at times, it's been a deadly problem because a grizzly doesn't care that it's your game. It doesn't care that you took the animal. All he cares about is, is one thing, and that's his appetite. And so if the bear shows up, um, the hunter would be wise to, to have a plan, to be prepared to, to know what he's going to do. He's either going to need to draw the line, or he's going to need to get out of the way. Um, because if he doesn't understand what could happen, then he is in a bad, bad position. So where we pick up today in Ezra 4 um, is right after Israel has, has just fired their version of the gun at the end of chapter 3. It says, For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And in chapter 4, we see some bears come out of the woods, some worshipers of a different kind, who played by their own rules and who had their own appetites. And Israel would be faced with the decision where to draw the line. So just quickly to review, here's what we've seen to this point. You see in chapter 1 where Cyrus, pagan king, in a direct fulfillment of prophecy, gives a charge to God's people to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And not only does he give the charge to do this, but he sends them back with, with vessels of, of gold and silver, the pots and pans that Dylan referred to, worth no telling how much. Uh, all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, he says, hey, go rebuild it, take this with you. And he gives his, his people charge to to donate to the cause, so anyone who lives around these Jews that are, that are planning to make this trip, or they're, they're pretty much commanded to, to give what they can to help, and they do. Um, and it's much like what we see in, in Israel's exodus from Egypt. People are excited. 
the, the Israelites are elated. And so 40,000 people, or more than 40,000 people, set out, and they eventually arrive in the Holy Land, and they, and they get organized, and, and they immediately get to work because they're eager to restore the system of worship as commanded in the law. And so they set up an altar, and they, they celebrate the Feast of Booths, and after they lay the foundation of the temple, they, they come together, and it's, and it's a big celebration. And then at the end of chapter 3 in Ezra, we, we we're told that it was a very, very loud noise they made. And rightfully so, right? I mean, this, this was a big deal. And, and looking at what God's people had just endured, I mean, the journey back couldn't have been easy, right? I mean, it, it, they faced all kinds of obstacles. Um, what they had accomplished to that point, it wasn't easy either. They st- and they still had a monumental task facing them. But Israel felt really good at this point in time. They must have felt really good about the situation, right? I mean, progress was being made. They had the king's blessing. They had what they needed. The foundation was laid. They were happy. They were together. They were praising God. They had a reason to celebrate. But there's an old saying that says that every mountain has its valley. And it was about to ring true for God's people because they weren't alone in the land. And not everyone shared their zeal to worship the God of Israel. And so we have to assume God's people already had the attention of the people in the land. But all of this commotion must have especially drawn attention. Big crowds and and lots of noise will do that. But there's something else about what was happening with Israel that was destined to draw attention regardless of the noise. It was God's people doing God's work. Because when God's people are doing his work, they will draw attention. And that's by design. Jesus said of his people in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, don't hear me say that that our goal as God's people is to draw attention. That's not necessarily the goal. Living out the Great Commission is not about being seen. It's about being faithful. Our goal is not to draw attention, but rather to glorify God as we live life on mission. And when we do that, when we live missional lives, it will eventually draw attention because it's not of this world. It's light in the midst of darkness. That draws attention. It's just what it does. And so verse 16 of Matthew 5 goes on to say that in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to to your Father who is in heaven. So picking up at, at, at uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we, we see where it says, the author says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So this actually looks like a, a charitable offer on the face of it, from the people of the land, doesn't it? I mean, that is if you overlook the fact that the author calls them adversaries, which is kind of hard to overlook. Seems like they're trying to play nicely, though, right? I mean, it appears that they're ready and willing to give a hand, and, and there's this bonus. They, they come claiming that they, too, worship God. But who are they, and what are they doing here, and why does the author call them adversaries? Second um, Kings chapter 17 gives us an answer. This is a little lengthy, but I think it's important to kind of set the tone here. Starting in verse 24, it says, And the king of Assyria, and this is obviously sometime previous to the Jews' return, 
brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ivah, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling, at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. Picking up in verse 34, to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them, or sacrifice to them. But you shall fear the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. So in view of the account in 2 Kings, we can gain a little better understanding of why the, the leaders of Israel viewed these people as adversaries. Israel's leaders knew the history, and they knew that these people were not who they were presenting themselves to be. So we see Israel's response in verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but, le but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, it's very possible that the Samaritans knew, in fact, I think they did, know what the answer would be. Um, I think they knew what Israel was about. And I think we need to spend a little more time here this morning, quite a bit of time actually, because I think the church today, at least in principle, finds itself in the same situation. Now obviously God isn't building a physical temple through his people, but he is building his church. And we face the same problem that Israel faced in Ezra's day in that the world still wants control. It still wants in. But God hasn't changed. He still requires obedience from his people and everything, but particularly in his building projects. And just as the leaders of Israel recognize, and just as the church should also recognize, there are some things that are strictly reserved for God and his people. The building of his temple is one of them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11, for we, we being the church, are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one of you take care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And you know, I personally think that the temptation to disobey in this area is probably greater than we realize. Looking at the text and, and, and giving credit to where it's due, um, you look at Zerubbabel's response, he didn't appear very tempted. Like, he was, he was pretty resolute. But you have to assume that there were others standing around thinking, man, we've got a big job to do. That's a big pile of rocks over there. It might be helpful to have a few extra backs. Maybe there's a provision in the law that allows for some manual labor. 
con contracting or something. Let's check that again. Let's, let's, maybe not, but I'm, I'm going to assume that because people haven't changed. <laughs> and from the ground level, practically speaking, the, the help would have been nice, right? It would have been nice. I mean, they had a big job to do. But what was the cost? This was between God and his people, and it was clear. What did Cyrus, the king, moved by God, what did he say in, in chapter 1, verse 3 of Ezra? He says, who is among you, or whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. James Hamilton describes the situation well when he says, we all face choices like this, don't we? Do we compromise our principles or do we offend people who could help us? Whose help is more valuable, man's or God's? Do we trust in God and do what he says or do, or do we do what makes sense in the eyes of the world? Well, we know the answer to that question. We trust God and we do what he says because the cost is too great if we don't, church. God will never lead you, listen, God will never lead us into disobedience in one area in order to accomplish obedience in another area. It will not happen. Now, it, that does happen, and people say that God does do that, but he doesn't. Those people are lying. God will not do that. He never does. And I'm not saying that he won't use even our disobedience for our sanctification. He does that. But do hear me say that he won't sanction it. Obedience is the only way in God's eyes. That's what he demands. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Hamilton goes on to say, Imagine a battalion fighting to plant their flag on the hilltop. If they betray everything the flag stands for in the fight to the top of the hill, what have they accomplished when they plant that flag? If they adopt all the practices of their enemies and their desperation to win the battle, have they defeated their enemies? Or have they become them? This is what is at stake in Ezra 4. If Israel allows these adversaries to build the temple, they might as well not build at all. Hear me, church. The world has no place in the church. The world has no place in the church. And for the sake of the world, we must not give it one. But to the degree that we do, to the degree that we let it in, it's to that same degree that we've identified with those who oppose God and have become just like them, to the detriment of the church and to the detriment to those who we're trying to reach. Because for the church that chooses that path, its end will be destruction. There may be a, a building still standing, there may be a group of people still meeting, but if the world is calling the shots, it's not the church. And church, this is where we need wisdom. This is where we desperately need God's wisdom. Because we're on mission to reach the world. Right? We're on mission to reach the very people that we have to exclude at times. And we know that people are the material with which God builds his church. People are the church which means that there must be a place for the lost in God's plan. There must be a, a role or a function for the lost in our mission. We all were once lost, right? So what is that function? What is that place? 
That place is a place of hearing, of receiving God's grace, of listening, of believing the gospel. That's the place for the world. Here's the gospel. Believe it. The gospel that says Christ, God's son, chose to come to this earth and live a perfect life and die a death that we deserve to die and then was raised in power so that anyone who believes in him will be saved. That gospel. It's a place of invitation to come and hear that gospel. Come just as you are. Just as you are. Come and hear the word. No sin is too great. He can forgive anything. We want you to come and hear the word. This is the place that we reserve for the world. And it's a really good seat. But it's only when you believe that you become a vessel for glory. A brick fitted into God's new covenant temple. And the only thing we can offer to the world is the invitation to believe. Because when it comes to the function of the church, when it comes to the direction of the church and the goals of the church and the process and procedure and form and control, these things are reserved for God and his people. We must exclude the world here or it ceases to be the church. So practically speaking, what does this look like for sojourn? The timing is interesting. It's pretty simple. If you're not a believer, you can't be a pastor, you can't be a deacon, and you can't be a member. It's not too complicated. Scripture is crystal clear that these positions would be filled by those who follow Christ. But again, if you're not a believer, you can have that seat I referred to earlier. And in that seat, you will hear about Jesus every Sunday. Every Sunday. But church, if we compromise here, we, we not, again, we not only risk the destruction of this local body, this local temple, we also severely undermine our ability to reach the very people we're on mission to reach. It's a lose-lose. And we can't do it. We've seen what happens when people do. So we stay on mission. We hold up Christ and we hold out the gospel and we trust God with the rest. And when we draw attention, it should always be because we're doing those things. Drawing the world by trying to be like the world is not the mission. And the church is terrible at it anyway. Well, some churches are good, which makes you question. <laughs> Most churches are really bad at trying to be in the world. At trying to be the world, it's just not. It's awkward. We should try to be God's people. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, and this is in the NLT, so I don't think it'll be up there, but... He says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a part partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Man, that's, that's pretty tough. It almost sounds kind of judgmental. But this is God speaking. He wants to keep his church pure from the world so that the world might be saved 
Israel had to build the temple. It couldn't be any other way. For the sake of the Samaritans, for the sake of the people who wanted to destroy them, they had to do it. It was between God and them, and it was his plan to bring glory to his name. And they needed to see it. So we do it God's way. We strive to obey the word, and we, we strive to preach the gospel, which Paul says in 2 Corinthians is the fragrance of life for some, but the stench of death for others. And again, in 1 Corinthians, he says it's, it's, it's God's wisdom and power to some, but mere foolishness and ignorance to the world. Listen, church, preaching the gospel won't win a popularity contest. And it probably won't fill football stadiums with people who want to be successful in this life. I mean, I haven't seen it do that yet. By the grace of God, maybe it will one day. And if those things are your goals, then you shouldn't do it. If you want to fill football stadiums and you want to teach people how to have the best life now and, and you want to build big buildings, like you, you probably shouldn't follow God's plan. You should listen to the world and use their tactics because they're good at it. But preaching the gospel and doing things God's way will add to the temple that God is building. The one that will stand the test of fire. And it can be really hard to stay the course. It can be uncomfortable. And in many places it can even be deadly. But it's the only way. And just as Zerubbabel did, just as the prophets did, just as Moses and so many others who chose risk and discomfort in order to identify as God's people, so we too must do the same when faced with the same decision. But if comfort is what you seek, if you just want a trustworthy group of friends, good moral people around you, or if you just need help making the budget, you'll be happy to let the world in. If it's just about moving piles of rocks, or improving facilities, or glorifying your own name, or performing, then you'll be open to many options. And if you take that path, you might move a lot of rocks, and you might gain a lot in attendance, and giving might even increase. And build bigger buildings, which I'm not saying some of this stuff is not evil in and of itself. It's necessary. It's not our focus, though, right? You might see an increase in some of these things, but whatever becomes of it, whatever the product, it's not the church. But if God is who you seek, then you will follow Jesus, and you will build his church his way. And by the way, it is the most loving thing we can do for the world. It's inclusion by exclusion. And when the church operates this way, when we seek to keep the church unstained by the world, and when we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, it will, by design, draw attention to our Heavenly Father. Amen. By design. But there's something else that will draw. It will draw opposition. We see this in verse 4, where it says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of, of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of, Jeru of Jerusalem and Judah. Now, isn't it interesting to see that faithfulness to the mission was all that was needed to reveal the true intentions of the adversaries? 
faithfulness to the mission was all that was needed to reveal their intentions. I need to be reminded of that. I definitely have in the past needed to be reminded of that for very specific reasons. But man, we all need to remember we don't need to worry about all the drama that surrounds what we're trying to do as God's church. We just need to keep our noses down and stay on mission. God just has a way of of moving and of filtering and of solving things and of doing things and of adding people and of removing people. We just need to stay on mission. And God will do what he does. He'll build this church. And that's that's all the Israelites needed to do was just to keep working, keep building, keep doing it God's way. And so we see when the offer to help was refused, and it was clear that Israel was determined to obey God, we see that the Samaritans show their hand. Uh, we, we see them resort to, to less subtle tactics. We see discouragement, intimidation, bribery, accusation. And those are the things that the author mentions. I mean, there's no telling what all went on. He just kind of gives us a picture of what's happening here. And it's no surprise, right? It's no surprise. We shouldn't be surprised because the same devil we face today was alive and well in those days. Paul warns us of this in 2 Timothy 3.12 where he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I like what Peter Williams says here. He says, We can see from our present passage that when God's people are active in his work, in this instance, building the temple, then Satan will be equally active in seeking to suppress it. And he will use every means at his disposal. Sometimes he will use subtlety, coming as an angel of light, as in the friendly approach of the Samaritans. At other times, his strategy is to prowl about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He will use friends and family, times of sadness and joy, times when things are going well with us, and times when circumstances are against us. But always his aim is the same, to undermine God's work in the world, and to crush God's people. Make no mistake, Christians get the special attention of Satan. He studies us very closely, watching every move we make so as to bring us crashing down morally and spiritually. So let's take a a quick look at the kinds of opposition we see here because I think it would serve us well uh, to to identify the tactics in play. I think we, we would be advised to be reminded. And you see, you see Paul, even in Ephesians 6, what does he call the tactics of the devil? He says they're, they're the wiles of the devil. They're the, it's, it's, it, the word means multifaceted. Like, Satan's got a lot of tricks. He's got a lot of tools. He's studied people for a long time. He knows everyone's personality type in this room, and he knows what really irritates you, what fills you with pride, and everything in between. And he'll use it all. So, what we see, earlier we saw this, the enemy tried the the let's be friends approach, Um, I guess the angel of light approach, as Peter Williams would say, and as the scripture tells us, um, they came with an offer to help. Kind of reminds me of another story where where a helper enters the scene, 
when God's original people were doing His work, His way. You see in Genesis 3.1 where, where Satan in the form of a certain offers his help in clarifying some things about good and evil. He wants to shed light on a, on a different way to think about doing life. Just there to help. It says, Now when the serpent, was more cra- the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the people of the land weren't as, as direct as the serpent, but it seems like they were at the very least indirectly questioning how God wanted things done. Because their offer to help would have led to disobedience for the people of God. And I think they knew that. We see situations like this all the time in the church. We see people coming off the street and request things that are clearly in opposition to what we believe as Christians, knowing what we're going to say so that the persecution can come. Like, it's a strategy. It's been, like, from the beginning of time. Like, we we see it all the time. Churches are wrapped up and Christian organizations wrapped up in lawsuits and you name it because this kind of thing happens all the time. And I think the Samaritans knew what they were doing. They wanted to subvert. And we can, say, we can see the same spirit at work in the garden. Did God say this monumental task was exclusively Israel's to accomplish? That was the temptation. Let us help you. We're on your team. Satan coming to Adam and Eve, let me, let me shed light on the situation. You really want to eat the fruit. Let me just tell you why you should. He came as a helper, right? And he destroyed life. But thankfully, you see here that God's people didn't fall for it this time. They stayed faithful to the mission. And we all know that Satan has more of a sleeve, right? We know that he can do more than the angel of light routine. We've, we've seen it. If you know the Lord, you've, you've seen more than that. We see fear. We see bribery. We see accusation. Um, all these things are, are in the scripture. 1 Peter 5.8, the Bible describes the adversary as a roaring lion. You know, I've never heard a lion really roar in person, but I've heard people say it is bone-chilling. I mean, it is bone-chilling. It will make a person afraid. And he likes to do that. Bribery. The world would say that every man has his price. I don't believe that. But I think the world does. Accusation accusation is another one we see here. The the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. Lying. The Bible says Satan is the supreme liar. The father of lies, John 8, 44. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And we see all these in this narrative, right? Verse 4, we see the roaring lion appear as the, as the people of the land discourage the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. We don't get the details, but whatever they were doing, they were pushing fear. Verse 5, we see where the enemy bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose, probably evil people who were really persuasive and good with their words, to come and to to cause problems, 
to delay things. Verse 6, we see it really ramp up. If the king gave the order to build, then with proper motivation, the king might just give the order to stop building. And so the enemy does what he does so well. The leaders of the Samaritans send letters of accusation to the king. And as we'll see, it has, this effect. It has an effect. It's a 16-year effect. And the honeymoon was over for Israel, right? Like we see that all these good times, tough but, but good times, making the trip, establishing your home, or temp, whatever it was, your tent, getting organized, building the altar, celebrating the Feast of Booths, like being Israel, laying the foundation of the temple, all that just built up, and then the attacks came. And the honeymoon was over. The, the valley was in clear view, and, and this was really an all-out blitzkrieg uh, by the enemy. And judging by what happens next or, or what doesn't happen for 16 years, I'm not sure Israel handled it very well. We'll get into that a little more next week. But guess what? Many times we don't handle it well either. But we know who does. God does. An opposition like this can knock us off our feet. But it's not how it affects God. He's never deterred. His people may be opposed. But who's going to directly oppose God? Who's going to do that? Not the devil, not anyone else. You don't oppose him. You can oppose his people. But you're not going to hurt God. You're not going to delay him. Yes, you might in spirit oppose him, but your opposition is weak. It's impotent. It's not going to do anything. And that's the God we serve. And this God has, worked, has walked more than a mile in our shoes. We see in, in Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 that he can relate to exactly what we feel and what we face. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus came to live among us. We know this. That's why we're here. And he drew attention. He drew a lot of it. He also drew opposition, intense opposition. And just like the Israelites in this passage, the vast majority of his opposition came from those who claimed to worship God. The very people he came to save. He faced the same kind of opposition. He faced fear. I can't imagine uh, that the wilderness was a place known for, for safety and security, much less 40 days with no food. He faced bribery, and that one of his closest friends, followers, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, bribed to betray the king of the universe. He was falsely accused. Lies were leveled against him. He was beaten, spit on, verbally abused. And ultimately, he was murdered. But he didn't fail. In fact, he, just, he did what he intended to do. He was perfectly faithful to the mission because he was God's perfect son. And he was the only one that could be. And while we can be encouraged by the leaders of Israel and their example, they were fallen men. And you can bet they would have their moments of weakness and sin. 
But even in the face of the strongest opposition, even after 40 days of fasting in the desert and being tempted by the devil himself, even after the grueling process of crucifixion, Jesus never failed. He never abandoned the mission because he was God. And he had determined to build a new temple, to lay a new foundation, one that would never be destroyed, one that we're told even the gates of hell would not overcome. And he's invited all who would believe to come and help and to literally be a part of this temple. What a privilege. But you have to pass through the door first. Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. World, that's our invitation. If we have people in this congregation that do not know Jesus, that is the invitation. Come and be a part. Come through the door. We're in the middle of a hard mission, church. We're told that we'll be like sheep among the wolves and that we'll draw attention and many times it will be the negative kind because there are bears in these woods. We will face opposition, possibly unto death, but nonetheless, it will be worth it if we endure. If we do God's work, God's way, and if we draw the line where God draws the line, we will build his church. Because as we've seen in both the scripture and in our own lives, he will be faithful to complete the work he started. And he will finish his temple. Let's pray. Father, we just, um, we just thank you that you have called us to be your own. We are thankful that, God, you have given us a mission. That you have employed us to be partners with you as you build your church in this world. And God, we know that the preaching of the gospel is where it starts. And we know that that's where it ends, really. But Lord, you want us to obey. You want us to be pure, to value the things that you value, to resist the devil, to refrain from sin. And yet, Lord, when we do, you make provision. We have a high priest who stands before you, Lord, who is always standing on our behalf. God, we're grateful for that. We know that we'll fail. We know that we'll mess up. We know that we don't do this mission perfectly. We're not trying to act like we do. But Lord, we know that you did. And we know that that looking to you as we seek to be on mission with you, looking to you, Father, is the only way it's going to work. And obeying you, Father, is the way to walk. So help us do that, God. Help us make tough decisions. Help us know how to handle the world, how to, how to meet the opposition with your wisdom, with your kindness, with your love. Your word tells us to love even our enemies, those who want to persecute us, those who want to take the church down, Lord. They don't know it but they're trying to take down the only thing that will save them from their sin. And God, we want to show them that. We want to show them that in how we live, how we speak. We want to show them the temple that reflects your glory, that they might be saved as well. Lord, I'm thankful for this book. I'm thankful for this church, Lord. I'm thankful for Dylan and his faithfulness, God, just to dig in and preach it every Sunday. Lord, we pray that you would just bless 
our efforts as so long as they line up with your word.